The only way is up. You create your own career. And leaders are born, not made. These are just three of the 15 myths that are unraveled in the book Making Your Way, The Wobbly Road to Success and Happiness in Life and Work. A book that everyone can and should read. Hi, my name is Mathieu van den Bogaert and welcome to the second part of the Vlerik Book Podcast, where we discuss 15 myths with both authors, Vlerik Dean Marion de Bruyne and Professor Kathleen de Stobeler. Marion, as being a dean, how did you find time to write a book? Yeah, I, it was a labor of love to begin with, so it never really felt like like work, but but really something that I enjoy doing. And I've talked about it as writing a book as really as being like an intimate process. You really feel like you are in a cocoon, you know, speaking to an individual reader, and 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 that to me is very enjoyable to do. And um, in reality, this happened mostly on Sundays when uh, I was in my writing uh, writing cocoon. Yeah. And did your partner or your friends or your colleagues give you inspiration or input for writing this book? I think some uh, stories they may recognize <laughs> a little bit. So I think unknowingly they inspired um, things. And But I also think that we mostly inspired each other. You know, we wrote about the process of writing this book as a, like a jazz combo playing together. You know, we, we each wrote pieces and then played off each other and said, ah, oh, okay, that makes me think about something else. And so uh, I think we really found inspiration with uh, with each other. Yeah, and maybe also picking up on that, I think today if I would read the book, I would really have to think hard who wrote what. Uh, we really sometimes finished literally each other's sentences. And so in that sense, it also feels like one and one became three um, in the end, which is really nice uh, because it could also end differently, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and we hope that the reader also feels that. Yeah. For you, Kathleen, it's your first book. For you, Marion, it's your... Second or third or fourth book? I have third, yeah. Your third book. You already wrote a book together with Kun Tux. You already wrote a book yourself. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between writing a book on your own or having a co-writer? Absolutely. Every project obviously is is different, um, and and so the ways of working together uh, are different are different as well. Um, I think this this process went indeed, you know, smooth and like a like a jazz uh, like a jazz combo. Yeah. In the book, a lot of movies and music are mentioned, like uh, movies like Thelma and Louise. Kathleen, why is that? Well. I've always been a, a big reader and a fan of books, uh, but perhaps I'm even a, a bigger fan of movies. And it's also something that I discovered from Mariona, that she also likes uh, great cinema. Um, and um, my love actually for, for movies became even bigger when, when I was spending time in, in the US, where in Michigan, where we had this very nice and old uh, movie theater. And I really learned to appreciate uh, great cinema even, even more there. Uh, but of course, that's not the reason uh, why, why we had so many movies in the book. For me, a, a movie, it's a, a unique combination of technical skills. There's a lot of research involved in a movie, but there's also this craftsmanship and uh, a lot of art involved. And I think that's that's also how I look at happiness and, and careers. So you have the, the 
technical part uh, and in the book that would be the research part, I would say. Uh, but there's also the art and craftsmanship uh, that is involved. And so I think very often when we were writing things, uh, we, we kind of immediately spontaneously thought about these, these quotes from movies uh, because they often uh, contain a lot of wisdom. But underneath that wisdom, there is also a lot of research. So I think it also came very spontaneously. Yeah. And what's your all-time favorites? Oh, I have many. It changes from day to day, I must say. Talma and Louise is certainly one because I think it's also an important uh, movie for uh, gender equality, which is another topic I have uh, close to my heart. And who of the two is Thelma? Who is Louise? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Who will drive us no, off no the cliff, comments. you mean? <laughs> no comments. Um, next to movies and music, um, a lot of quotes of famous people are mentioned. Do you have one quote in particular that you like, Marion? Well, we also in the book talk about our sources of inspiration, which indeed come from um, academic research, which come from books, but also podcasts that we uh, that we love listening to. And one of the podcasts that I often listen to, it's called The High Low. Um, and, and I think, you know, bringing together sort of the high and the low is also what we do here in the sense of, you know, highbrow, highbrow academic research and scientific resources, but also, you know, uh, popular media. And, uh, um, and, and so my favorite quotes probably are from the fact that we quote Dr. Seuss, which is a children's book, that we quote Dolly Parton, one of my favorite quotes, you know, if you want to see the rainbow, you have to put up with the rain. Um, uh, you know, which I think is a is a strong uh, is a strong message. So my my favorite quotes properly are the, are those that contrast the academic research with more popular media. Yeah, and is this the book you would have liked reading when you were young, starting your career? Um, it's definitely uh, the messages I would have needed early on in my career. I'm not sure if I would have read it early on in my career. I would have really always listened to the advice that is given uh, that we give in the book. Uh, but there are certainly so some elements in there that I think, oh, I could have saved myself a lot of uh, suffering, I guess, uh, if I had known uh, these things up front. Uh, so I do think it's a book I would have liked reading. I'm not sure that I would have done a lot with it, though, yeah. <laughs> to be all honest. Yeah. And you, Marion, is this the book you want to pass to your children? In, in some sense, yes. Um, and while writing, I was often sort of in my mind talking to my godchild. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, I, I guess indeed what, what I would really love that we are able to reach with this book is, um, you know, some of the occasions that I had when what you read is really bringing you an aha moment. Um, you know, I talked about how when I first read a study on imposter syndrome and, and really recognized that, ah, oh, okay, this is this is something that I have as well, and I'm not the only the only one. Um, and, and so I really hope that we can evoke some of those aha moments that indeed give people, you know, a, a boost of confidence or a, a bit of inspiration or can indeed save them some agonizing that, uh, that we went through or that some of the people that we share their stories of in the book went, uh, went through. 
And somehow I, I also feel we're, we have succeeded in that. If I look at the initial reactions I get, um, one of those reactions is, oh, wow, it's so recognizable. And I'm so glad that somebody has put words on this feeling. Uh, so, so that is really the reason why we wrote this. So, and I'm also happy to hear that we uh, certainly uh, achieved that for mm -hmm. many people. You already got some positive feedback on the book? Only positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice when, you know, while you are writing, this, this reader is a fictional person or is in your imagination. And suddenly that reader becomes real, uh, real people with real mm -hmm. reactions that also feels a bit scary and nerve wracking. Uh, but, it, but, it, but it's a really a lot of fun and, and, and very exciting. Myth number five, to be successful, I need to sacrifice everything else. So in the book, Alan Kosek's five different styles of managing the boundaries between work and leisure is mentioned. Um, what are those styles? I think the key message um, from Alan Kosek's work is that there is no right or wrong way to manage you know, work and everything else in your life. Um, uh, around it and different people have different styles that work for them and that are comfortable for, for them. So some people are clear separators. There is the territory of work, there's a territory of life, and they want a clear demarcation, a clear separation um, between, uh, between the two others, um, and, and, and I'm one of those, are integrators. You know, they happily will, you know, have one evade into the other, you know, when you are, see absolutely no issue in, you know, taking a private phone call at work or, you know, um, running out quickly to do, uh, you know, a private errand, but you also don't see an issue in, you know, working on Sunday uh, or, um, uh, you know, doing some work after the kids were, you know, went to bed in the evening. You know, those are typically integrator styles. And then you have people who, for whom work always comes first. And you have people for whom, you know, private life always comes first. And then the final style are the people who are cyclers. They have periods in their life where work comes first. And they have periods in their life when uh, other things come, uh, come first. And they cycle from one thing to, uh, uh, to the other. They may take a sabbatical for a year and go travel with the family across the globe and then come back and, and you know, and go fully into, into work life, uh, work life again. So, and I think the, 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 the nice thing about those five styles is that they make you realize that there is no archetype that everybody needs to follow and that it's useful to find out what works for me. Um, and it also is useful to ask yourself, is there a match between the context that I'm in and the style that I thrive on and that I'm comfortable with and also make this maybe explicit um, that, um, you know, you, 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 you'd rather separate things or you have no issue in integrating, uh, integrating things. I'm an extreme integrator, I would say. Uh, uh, so I'm the type of person who uh, who would uh, 
work when the kids play hockey and uh, and combine that. But I'm also the type of person who does work calls while being in the dressing room of a swimming pool somewhere. Uh, um, I Even one of the chapters of the book was written while I was on the treadmill with a, a dictaphone in front of me. I, it had to, to, I had to work on it a bit afterwards, I must say. But uh, meaning I, I'm an integrator with all the, the, the benefits that come with that, but of course also with, with all uh, the pitfalls that come uh, with it. Uh, and I, I agree completely with what Marion says. It's not only about your own preference, but it's also about being transparent about what your preference is, both at work, I think. I, it's important to, to create that transparency, uh, but also with your partner. Uh, because if imagine that you have two completely different styles when it comes to combining work and, uh, and family, I do think you need to have a conversation uh, about yeah. that. And would you say that you don't believe in the notion of work-life balance? Is everything life or...? Of course, yeah. Work is an important part of life. And in the book we write, uh, uh, balance is bogus. Um, at the same time, I also need to nuance that probably a little bit in the sense that uh, for me, balance is really a feeling. Yeah, It's not about the number of hours you work versus the time you spend at home, but it's more of a feeling. And also, I think uh, the reality is that many times you don't feel very balanced. Uh, so many times you say, what, what am I combining here? Uh, and that's the reality that most people are in, I think. But it's also, and for me, that is what true balance is. It's embracing that and accepting that. And as long as you fight it and you are looking for this perfect balance, you won't find it. It's the moment where you say, well, you know, there are moments where uh, it's a chaos uh, and, and, and that's okay. Uh, and having some mildness there, for me, that is what true balance is, is about. I totally agree. And I think in that sense, indeed, we don't believe in the notion of work life balance or, you know, we claim balance is bogus because it's an elusive concept, you know, you, you, you almost never reach it and you can frustrate yourself endlessly with, you know, with not reaching it. Um, and, and so I think in that sense, a, a bit of mildness uh, works. Yeah, but how do you avoid a burnout in that case in, in, in the sense that you can keep working all the time. So at a certain moment, you have to protect yourself. Absolutely. And we know that work tends to dissipate, you know, through everything, um, especially for those integrators. And I, But I also think that um, if there is one misconception about an integrator, an integrator is a person that indeed, through the examples that Kathleen gave, sees no problem in having work in be integrated in the rest of your life, but it's also a person that doesn't see an issue in doing the, you know, the reverse indeed. And sometimes saying, well, you know, this Friday noon, I'm going to have lunch with my girlfriends and, you know, that might take a little longer, or I'm going to take, you know, a half day off just to have some personal time. Um, so the, the integration works both ways. Uh, I think that that's, you know, important to realize about the integrator style, a person with an integrator style um, ask for flexibility um, in both ways, you know, they ask for flexibility from work life as well as from private life in having a bit of the other side come into it, come into the territory. 
Yeah, and, and if you look at um, burnouts, uh, I, I've seen people in burnouts, uh, yes, working maybe too many hours, but I've also seen many people with very fixed hours uh, going into a burnout. Why? Because maybe they were integrators, but they were pushed into this narrow framework. Uh, and for them, that led to, to a burnout. So I think we, we need to be be careful of saying, oh, burnout is always the consequence of, of working too many hours. Uh, I know many CEOs who work lots of hours, but who have this, this uh, feeling of, of harmony uh, with that. Uh, and I think it's, again, uh, you make a choice and you take the consequences of that choice and you love your choice. Um, and, and I think it's also the case for, for, uh, for balance. Yeah. Do you think a lot of companies have a nine-to-five mentality or more expecting from their employees to be available all the time? I see an evolution there, and I, I see also that, that COVID has been a big accelerator uh, when it comes to both when people work, but also, of course, uh, where uh, they work. Uh, um, so, so I do see a, a huge evolution there. But again, it's, it's not about one is better than the other. It's having this conversation with employees and creating a transparency about what do you expect, what do we expect, and, and making it work, basically. You know, now we have all seen each other's living rooms, uh, children's <laughs> bedrooms in the background, True. the cats, the dogs, you know, the toddlers <laughs> through the many, you know, um, digital meetings. Um, and that has been, you know, the result of COVID. And I think to some extent, that's actually something really healthy because it makes very tangible and very visible that we all have, you know, parts of our personality that are professionally oriented, but also, you know, that we also have a life beyond work. Um, and, and I think for Anybody in HR or in leadership, I think it's actually healthy to realize, you know, people bring their full life to work. It's not as if your life stops when you enter, when you enter your workplace um, and, and just as much vice versa. Myth number six, learning stops at graduation. Graduation is an illusion because you will never really be done with learning. I think that's, that's a nice quote from you, Marion. Mm -hmm. How do you keep up to speed? yourself and how do you think employees should keep up to speed? So for me personally, I think throughout my career, I've always been driven by, by learning uh, in the sense that indeed when things become too much routine or too much the same or too much like, you know, I, I know this, I've done this before. I tend to get, you know, a little bit bored. Um, and I've been lucky enough that every time when I have felt that boredom coming up, a new challenge in one way or another has presented itself or I gave myself a new challenge in, a, in one way or another that allowed me to go into something that I hadn't done before. Um, where, you know, very often you come into situations where it's a little bit sink or swim and, you know, and you learn how to swim, um, uh, quite, quite quickly. Um, how do I do that? Well, I, I, I think I learn a lot through observation, um, you know, just by taking in, um, what other people are doing, what other people are, are saying. And I learn a lot personally through reading. I've, I've always been, 
uh, um, ferocious and, and uh, reader, reading lots of different things um, as well. For me, that's that's fiction always fiction. Mostly nonfiction these yeah. days. Yeah. And in in the past, I was a fiction reader. Um, I must confess that today, I, I I don't find that much time to read. Fiction has become something for for the holidays. Um, and and the rest of uh, the rest of the year, it's mostly nonfiction. But this is where I find where I find a lot of in, a lot of inspiration, um, and and also sometimes indeed through you know formal training, you know f- you know formally saying this is an area that I want to dive into, and I will spend explicit time uh, to uh, to learn this, you know, to to follow a course. Um, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, I followed our own course on how to manage virtual teams because, you know, we, we were all confronted with this, having to suddenly remotely manage people. Um, and so I thought, let's eat our own dog food. Uh, you know, we have a course on this. Uh, let's, let's take it. Yeah. And then the second part of the question, what would you advise employees in general or business leaders, how to keep up to speed? Come to Vleric? Absolutely, of course. <laughs> Vleric is the best way, <laughs> the because best we reach for you <laughs> to uh, uh, to keep up to speed. No, all, all, all kidding aside. Um, uh, obviously, there is uh, a space for formal training, and I think an important one. If we look at, you know, the 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 number of people that, when they are adults and so-called graduated never ever take the time anymore you know to to do a training or follow a course that is you know that is actually i think quite a risk and quite dangerous in a world that is around us so quickly changing with long careers you know a, a marathon careers where obviously it is an illusion that you know you graduate at what, 22, 23, and, you know, that gives you enough of a backpack of knowledge, you know, to, 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 you know, to go on for the next 40, 45, 45 years. Um, so I, I think they're, you know, just basically acknowledging um, that um, personally for me, usually around, you know, either the summer break or, or New Year, for me, this is at the time of reflection and introspection where I do stop and think about, okay, where am I today and where would I like to develop myself and what initiative am I going to take uh, to, uh, to develop myself? Why on earth would you embark on acquiring a new taste when your own taste is there without any efforts? Kathleen, how can you embrace or develop a growth mindset according to you? Um, I think there's two ways in, in which you could do that, uh, really embracing this, this growth mindset, this learning uh, mindset. For me, a lot depends on uh, your self-talk. So I'm going to give people permission to talk to themselves. Uh, um, for example, what, what I very often hear people say is, I can't do this or I'm not good at it. Uh, and of course, if you say I'm not good at it, uh, you're also probably not going to invest in learning it. So, so uh, one piece of advice, and, and this is also the piece of advice that Carol Dweck would say, rather than saying I cannot do it, rather say I cannot do it yet. 
And that's a very small thing, uh, uh, but that opens up much more this, this willingness as well uh, to, to learn it and say, okay, I can't do it yet, but you know, I could if I wanted to and if I invest in it. So uh, first of all, talk to yourself a bit more in this not yet uh, way of, of, uh, of, uh, of communicating. But the second one I would say is um, push yourself to every now and then uh, go in beginner shoes. And to be a complete beginner in, into something. Uh, um, because what we also know is that success, it becomes a bit of a trap. Uh, uh, and, and we all have a bit of a tendency to, to keep on refining what we're actually already good at. Um, but that's, of course, also a trap because we, we rarely then still go really out of our comfort zone. So for me, a second way to really uh, embrace this, this growth mindset is, is to really push yourself to pick up a new skill completely uh, from scratch. And then you'll see, oh, I progress. And it will also help you to progress in, in other areas of, of life and work, I'd say. Let's jump to myth number seven. You should fake it till you make it. How would you define authentic leadership and why is it important, Kathleen? Well, um, first of all, I see that people have a lot of misconceptions uh, when, when uh, they think about authenticity. Uh, one of the, the biggest ones I, uh, I uh, observe is actually that many people use authenticity as an excuse not to grow themselves. And they would say things like, I'm an introvert, so presenting, uh, that's nothing for me. It would not be authentic. Um, of course, that's a bit um, using authenticity as a reason to not grow. I also see people sometimes um, using uh, the concept of, of authenticity to constantly um, vent their emotions. And, and then they would say, yeah, but yeah, that, that's just how I am. I am an angry person, so I am. it's okay that I, I, uh, I get angry. Uh, but that is not really what, what authenticity is about. Uh, what, what authenticity is about, it's really knowing what your values are and um, being willing to act on those values. Uh, and to also, when you notice, mm, here my values are um, violated, uh, to also express that and to be honest about that, both with yourself, uh, first of all, but also with, with your environment. And, and for me, that is really what authenticity is about. It's not about faking it till you make it. Uh, it's really going in that vulnerable place uh, where you, you uh, show your vulnerabilities. And, and I would say, if you look at authentic leaders, that's typically what they would do. But I sometimes say seasons change, people do not. Do you think you can become an authentic leader if you have not the skills of being? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it takes almost more effort to... Uh, to not be authentic, I would say, uh, because you, you really need to think about, oh, what do people expect? And now I have to behave in this or this way. Um, so I think it, it actually requires much, much more effort to not be authentic. Yeah? What is really authenticity? It's knowing yourself, um, but also knowing a bit what does the context require 
and then aligning those two elements. Meaning, yeah, you might be an introvert, uh, but maybe your context, yes, requires you to teach. If I look at, at Vleric, for example, many of our professors are introverts. Uh, so uh, meaning that uh, they still can deliver a good presentation, but they do need to think about how will I do it authentically? How, uh, what would be a good way for me to do it? And then I see that when you start copying people, uh, typically it doesn't work out too well because it's very draining. Uh, so finding your own style. And of course, in the beginning, there's always some imitation involved. Uh, I think I also learned a lot from, from role models at, at Vleric, uh, learning me really the, the, the craft of teaching, for example. But there's also a moment where you need to make it your own. You need to find your own voice, your own style, uh, uh, because pretending to be somebody else, I think it's extremely exhausting and tiring. Mm. You mentioned the aspect of role models. Do you both have role models, authentic leaders you look up to? That's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, I have role models uh, and I cherry pick a bit, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I have many role models and they're very eclectic. Uh, very, I have role models in sports that I say, oh, I wish I... Yeah. There's role models in academia. Uh, my mentor in the US, she's definitely a role model for me. It's a bit the Meryl Streep, I would say, from academia. Uh, but that doesn't mean I will start copying her. It means that yeah, there's parts of, of that style that I think, oh, I can learn that. And, and it, it pushes me out of my comfort zone. But there's also parts that I say, well, that would just not be me. And, and I think it's good to have diverse role models. And, and I hope that many people look for diverse role models. Myth number eight, a good boss or a mentor is understanding and supportive. Sometimes you hit the jackpot and somebody comes onto your path and you're incredibly lucky to have met them at the right place. Uh, Marion, who was that for you? A whole series of people. I've been, I think, incredibly lucky um, that, you know, throughout my journey, there, there have, have been, you know, different people that at different stages have you know, not mentored or cuddled me or gave me advice, but just simply pushed me um, and, and pushed me forward. I, I remember um, before moving to the U.S. here, um, you know, the, the, the person that I was then working with, um, you know, literally saying to me, and now you're moving to the U.S. And, and you know, simply those words uttered with conviction, and strength, and you have to do it, were, were really the push that I needed to, to move from maybe, maybe, maybe to, to actually doing it. Um, and, you know, this, the same happened to me, uh, you know, when uh, becoming a professor then in the United States. Again, there were key people who said, go for it. Um, and, and in that sense, I, I have been lucky to have maybe not mentors, um, uh, but, but sponsors, people who have opened doors for me and, and, and pushed me through, or at least, you know, gave me the push. And also, and that's also an element of tough love, um, raised the bar uh, for me. And, and, you know, Kathleen already mentioned, talked about how, you know, some having people in your life who have high expectations for you and, and raise the bar even higher than maybe you would raise it for yourself is, is a real 
you know, a real sign of respect, um, of, of believing. Um, and that can be incredibly powerful, especially at times when you may be yourself, you don't fully believe in yourself, but if you have somebody else doing it for you, uh, it can be a, a very strong driving driving force. And I definitely been lucky to benefit from, uh, from it. Yeah. You mentioned sponsors and mentors. How would you define the difference? Well, I, I like the way Ilham Kadri, CEO of Solvay, uh, talks about it. And she said, you know, mentors talk to you, sponsors talk about you when you're not in the room. Um, and, and obviously that's not all to it. Um, but but it is a mentor is somebody who gives you advice um, and and who might be a role model and you know uh, tells you tells you what to do or helps you along along that path. Um, a, a sponsor is somebody who doesn't give you advice but gives you opportunities. Yeah. Literally opens doors for you and makes sure that you are able to walk through that door. Um, and that, that's a key difference between a mentor and, uh, and a sponsor. Something that might sound very familiar to a lot of Vlaric participants is the 360-degree feedback tool. Um, for those who don't know it, Kathleen, what is it and why should we use it? What, one of the key messages, I, I'd say we also give that message, by the way, in the book, is that Feedback is so important in, in growth and development. Um, uh, there's this quote that says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. But we also know that free feedback doesn't flow that freely yeah? and that people are often uh, reluctant to give it. Especially, I would say, the more experienced you become, the more expertise you gain, but also maybe if you uh, climb that corporate ladder, uh, the higher you climb that ladder, the less that people will honestly tell you what they think about you. Uh, uh, we call this the, the CEO disease, uh, but it's it's not a, a disease, I would say, that, that only hits CEOs. Uh, it's whomever uh, becomes recognized in a role. At a certain moment, you won't have a lot of people telling you, no, I don't agree. Uh, or telling you, you know, that part of your leadership, I actually don't like it. It's frustrating the hell out of me. So what is a, a 360? Uh, it's basically a, a way in which people can give that feedback safely. Uh, and it also uh, gives leaders the opportunity to receive it safely. Uh, because it's it's both, uh, it can create some unsafety giving it, but it's also a bit unsafe to, to receive feedback. Huh? And so this is what, what this tool basically does. It creates that safety to give feedback more freely, I would say. Myth number nine. Some people think of their networks as a resource of people they can reach out to when they need it, but really that's not how it works. So Marion, how does it work? Well, I indeed see that people, you know, only start networking sometimes, you know, at a time when they need something from someone, you know, when they need something from from their network. And when we say, well, that's not how it works, is that, you know, what it means is that you actually need to continuously invest in your network, even when you don't need it. Um, and, you know, when, when there is no immediate utility for you, you have to invest in it, be generous um, you know, with the people you encounter and with your network. So at a time when it's your turn to actually 
need a favor, need advice, need to be able to rely on somebody, that that is a natural thing because you have built connections with people, because you have built relationships with uh, with people. And so for me, networking really is about building those mutually beneficial relationships and connections with people rather than, you know, a, a resource that you only look at for, you know, from a utilitarian perspective. A concept, for example, that, that I like there is is uh, what, what Adam Grant writes about givers, takers, and matchers. I think this very much applies to your network. Uh, some people, they, they um, build a network uh, really with this attitude of what can I do for them? What can I give? Uh, this, this idea of generosity. Uh, but others, I think, have more this, um, they keep a kind of a bank account, uh, which would be a mat matching style where you say, well, I did this for you, but now I expect you to do something for me. And uh, and then you ha also have people uh, who really think about their networks uh, as taking, uh, what what can I get from them and and not wanting to, to do anything in, in return. And what we actually know is that those who have that giving mentality are also in the long run, much more successful. Huh? Um, they don't expect anything back, but they do, um, it, it, they almost uh, influence you to pay it forward. Uh, imagine, uh, Mathieu, I would say to you, um, uh, uh, I have coached you um, and I wouldn't expect anything in return, but maybe because I did that to you, you might also do it with someone else and paying that forward. And, and that's what we see is that givers, they often have this ripple effect, this, this sphere of influence that goes much, much further than their immediate network. Thanks for listening to the second part of this threefold book podcast. Making Your Way, The Wobbly Road to Success and Happiness in Life and Work is published by Lano. The book is available in English and Dutch and can be purchased at Variety bookstores. If you have questions or suggestions, mail us via podcast at vlaric.com. Next time, in the third and last part, we dive into the last six myths. So stay tuned. <laughs>